This week on The Futurist. When I think about the future, I think, well, what are the things that are inevitable? And then a quite different question is, how long will it take? And I think it's absolutely inevitable that, yes, we will interact significantly in virtual spaces and particularly using avatar-based technologies that are potentially as close to who we are exactly, you know, essentially replicating ourselves in a virtual world onto skin pores and so on. Hi, I'm Brett King, and with me on uh, The Futurist is Robert Turchek, and together we examine the thought leaders the engineers, the forecasters, the futurist sci-fi authors, building and thinking about the future every day. This week, we have world-renowned futurist, keynote speaker, entrepreneur, um, and author, Ross Dawson, a fellow Aussie futurist, which is is always good to support the Australian uh, view of the future. Ross Dawson, welcome to The Futurist. Awesome to be on the show. Thanks. Good to have so, you here, um, Ross. Yeah, I know we, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly when this this show will air, but, um, you know, uh, it is topical. How, how do you feel about the election result that, that occurred over the weekend? Uh, well, I'm not a fan of two-party systems. Yeah. And uh, we kind of put paid to that in Australia uh, quite uh, effectively over the last couple of days. Uh, this, this, I think, points to, you know, if we're talking about the future, that... Two-party, you know, a future of democracy is a pretty important part of uh, our future as a as a human race. And two-party politics is broken. I've gone for this for a long time as to why. Uh, but it just essentially means you've got two camps all fighting against each other, all opposing each other. And so being able to get a whole stack of independents and other parties and so on to play with that, I mean, it may make it a little less easy to govern but you know as in western many of the northern western europe uh, countries they've certainly done coalition politics in an effective manner and i think uh, yeah let's uh death of two-party politics uh, yeah thumbs up for that now consensus building um you know is is hard when you've got only two sides and it tends to be polarized like that so uh yeah, um, but uh, maybe we start with this, Ross. Um, you know, we've we've known each other for many years now. Um, in fact, we we met through um, the Futurist community online. Um, but um, you know, you you've been in this game for a while. You you know, previously had experience in um, like stock brokering and and other things. You've run your own businesses. But what made you go down the path of of becoming a futurist? Well, when I when I was young, I mean, I don't remember the exact date, but certainly while I was still at university, sort of twenty or something like that, I was thinking about, well, what do I do with my life? I I I chosen to do a degree. You're thinking about your future. Well, well, yeah, I was, but only just. I'd only just started because I did a degree in physics because I thought, well, I have no idea what I want to do. I'll just do something which I think is interesting, and I had no idea, no intention of becoming a physicist. But I thought physics, you know, let's this understands the nature of the world we live in. And then I started, began to think while I was there, I think, all right, well, I'll, this will be over and I want to get out in the real world. And, and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to be a futurologist, which was the, the term at the time. And so that was, and the other thing was just think tanks, I suppose, was I just wanted to think for a living, think about the world, think about society, think about where things were going. And, and I had a, most of my corporate career was a bit stultifying. Um, well, that's probably a bit cruel, but... But I mean, I learned a lot, but it just wasn't, it wasn't, it was a path It was trying to get me somewhere. And I, and when I finally left corporate world and I had got some great experience on the way, I, you know, the first thought was, well, yes, this is what I want to do. And in, in the first year I started doing scenario planning uh, program, which was run by Global Business Network and did my advanced scenario training in San Francisco and started doing that. And that's 25 years ago now. But it was still, you know, there's still, I wasn't a futurist because most that wasn't most of my work. So most when most people say- Back, back in the late, late 20th century. <laughs> that's, that's right, last century. So, so when people say, how do you become a futurist? I, I usually say, well, you claim you are and people either believe you or they don't. And what that means, you need to become credible first. And so, you know, there's plenty of people claiming they're a futurist, uh, far too many. 
But uh, I said, okay, well, I need to build my credibility. My first couple of books in particular started to pave the way. The first one, the subtitle, The Future of Professional Services. And over 20 years later, I think it's bought out. My second one was Living Networks, which again is sort of, I think, come to pass. But it was still another few years. And I set up uh, Future Exploration Network in 2006. And we launched the Future Future Media Summit, which was held simultaneously in Sydney and San Francisco. So there was um, that was a time when, you know, I had built my own futurist organization. We were doing work all over the world. It was uh, that was a time I was firmly, finally, a full full time futurist. When you first set up uh, that the cross uh, Pacific uh, collaboration, that was where I, I think we crossed paths, or I first became uh, yes. got in contact with you. And at the time, I mean, that was that was a long time ago. That was about fifteen years ago. Um, Six, 2006 was the first one, yeah. That's right. So this is, be- just to put in perspective for people who are listening, that's before YouTube. Uh, it's before yeah. streaming video was a thing. And Ross was already finding ways to patch people together, um, transatlantic or transpacific, I guess, at that point, uh, for real-time conversations. And uh, was, un- was unlocking the power of collaborative forecasting or collaborative scenario planning. And that's really important, um, I think, because right now, of course, we're doing this call on Zoom everybody post-pandemic is quite comfortable with talking, you know, in real time to people on other sides of the world. That just wasn't the case back then. So in a way, uh, in order for you to gather the viewpoints of different people from around the world, you had to invent a little piece of the future. You know, you had to invent a little technology that enabled real-time collaboration. Talk a little bit about that. So I wanted to, so, uh, yeah, I've, I've, have a foot and had a foot in San Francisco. Well, many, many places around the world, San Francisco in particular, for a long time. And there were lots of had a good community of people there. And so I was running this event to kick off Future Exploration Network, Future Media Summit. I thought, well, you know, most of the really interesting people I know are a long way away. Well, let's build them into the conversation. So we had to uh, find a sponsor to sponsor the teleconference piece of it and did though for the first few years until we sort of worked out our own ways of doing it. But uh, it was really this, and it was very interesting, the dynamics of that in terms of saying, all right, well, how do we actually build a conversation between places and two continents? So we literally had a panel with people on one side and people on the other side. And I suppose- in the video first, or is it just audio? No, it was video. And That's so really one of the, quite so, impressive. So what you have yeah, to do yeah. is on the panel, you're sitting on the panel and then next to you is a screen. So it has to be kind of a little bit V-shaped. So it's like you can turn and you can look at the people on the panel who are on the other continent. And then you've got the moderator. And so you've got essentially, you know, people stand, sitting on a stage, of, you know, standing next to them a screen. So the audience can see both the people on both, you know, the physical people and the distant people. And the people on the panel can see the, their counterparts. So basically every problem that event planners around the world had to encounter during the pandemic, you solved about 15 years before them. Well, we, we made it work. The, 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 first, the, the first event, I actually thought, uh, well, actually, so I've got a colleague who did the San Francisco side said, well, actually, this didn't work quite as well as I wanted on the San Francisco side. So I actually spent every event after that, I flew over to San Francisco and, and moderated on that side. It worked out, basically, you have to have two people on each side, more than two on each side, and it just becomes difficult. You've got time lags and so on. And, and I moderated. I, I just felt I wasn't able to delegate. I had some brought in some moderators for some of them, and they didn't get like, the subtleties of uh, cross-continental panel moderation. Right on. Uh, do, you know, do do you think? Um, I know we're jumping right in here, but um, you know, w- with the advances we've seen around Zoom and so forth, obviously, um, the pandemic has shifted a lot of this where you know we even as speakers um you know the three of us are, are in that space um where we've got more used to doing virtual obviously going to physical events is still um something that i prefer to do but um you know where do you think or how quickly do you think the metaverse will create spaces for us to do these types of uh, events and collaboration well, how quickly is the important question? So I, I, when I think about the future, I think, well, what are the things that are inevitable? And then a quite different question is how long will it take? And I, I think it's absolutely inevitable that, yes, we will interact significantly in virtual spaces and particularly using avatar-based technologies that are 
very well potentially as close to uh yeah who we are exactly you know essentially replicating ourselves in a virtual world down to skin pores and so on so the timeline for that i think is very uncertain but uh we will move more and more on that i'm very interested as well in things like the you know, the 3D or quasi-3D or quasi-holographic or holographic and other ways of bringing us beyond a flat screen. And, uh, you know, they're getting some pretty decent advances in that. I think that some of that yeah. will progress apace. Uh, but the metaverse, I think, is going to be more and more engaging. But part of it, I think, is also that what it will take for people to feel comfortable to be an event, for example, in uh, the metaverse as opposed to, you know, the, what they used to on a screen or going to a physical event. And how much friction there is around setting each of those things up. Because right now, the vision, at least as I'm seeing it, it's pretty early for the metaverse. But the way I'm seeing it right now is each company seems to be pursuing their own separate version of the metaverse, which is going to kind of feel like another social network. And frankly, who the hell wants to go through the process of logging in, setting up a profile, connecting with your friend, all of that stuff. Can't we just have like a universal login? I'm excited by a company called Ready Player Me because they're developing a standard uh, where you can build an avatar that represents yourself and then it's transportable from uh, as long as the different metaverses subscribe to the same standard, uh, you'll be able to import that. So you don't have to like go through the hassle of replicating. And what that'll do is it'll increase sampling, right? It'll increase the ability for people to graze across multiple worlds. Uh, you know, what we're, we're drifting towards in this conversation, it seems like, is um, the way the Web2 companies have built all these uh, switching costs into their platforms. They make it very difficult for you to graze from one platform to another. And then that makes it difficult to commingle uh, communities. And I think what now that people have spent, you know, the good 10, 15 years developing a social presence and developing, um, a, you know, a, a virtual identity, and we've all become adept in developing digital ways of representing ourselves, whether it's a website or Twitter or social media or anything else. Um, now, I think people have a different expectation of what they want from a platform. We couldn't say what that was in 2006. We didn't know. But now we've all lived through it. And we can say, actually, here's what we definitely don't want. Here's what we definitely do want. I think that's actually kind of an exciting future. It's like the audience has matured somewhat. You know, uh, We weren't very good at social media in 2010 because most of us were new to it. Whatever happened yeah, what? to universal messaging too, you know, right? That was supposed to be a thing, right? You know, where you were going to bring in all of your different messaging, emails and SMS and, you know, social media into one platform. Um, that sort of disappeared or died a death as yeah. well. But platforms you don't know? like it. Even now, Apple's yeah. putting wedges in the, in the just plain text messaging, right? So if you have, um, if you've got, if you're texting with somebody who has an iPhone, you get one experience. If you're texting with somebody on Android, you get a slightly degraded experience and they sort of shame you by putting it in a green bubble and so forth. Uh, it's <laughs> it's old school. Like this is, we're tired of this approach, I think. Well, I you know, know, it's- Well, this, it's, is, it's, this it's, is probably, this is probably where ahead. I started a lot of these things in social media. So Living Networks, which I wrote in 2002, is largely about the immersion of social networks. And, and fundamental to it was the interoperability. That was yeah. one of the premises on which the, the my idea of the Living Networks was based. So early on in social media, I was um, involved. In fact, I was on the advisory committee for the uh, APML, the Attention Profile Markup Language, which was essentially being able to take transportable data and to build that. And a lot of you know what I wrote on my blog back you know this 15 years or so ago was about these issues of how we could transcend the uh, the walled gardens of the social media to be able to moved that and i've been following that for all the time and it's been pretty disappointing all along the way and in a way they've got more entrenched with how powerful each of those players are yeah so now as you suggest robert i think you know for, it is the degree of our you know user demand you know where we said we expect we must have this ability to interoperate and the fact that you know that being actually driving the success of these platforms or otherwise because it's going to be a brutal battle to play out. This is yeah. this is the massive prize, yeah, and right. so uh, if those if we see that those platforms that offer a greater degree of interoperability are favored by users because they feel this way now, having been battered for so long, then that that's promising. I've been um, I've been talking about data colonialism and AI imperialism in the sense that you know data assets are extracted from audiences all over the world, but they're typically 
concentrated in companies that are based in California or in Beijing. And so they're they're being centralized. Um, and then what comes back to the the colonized, if you will, we go with the metaphor, is uh, AI that makes decisions about what you get to see and what you get to choose. And so a limited set of choices comes back to you. And um, and this is starting to resonate. I think what's going to emerge, my prediction, and it's something I'm working towards my own work, is a digital bill of rights. Uh, you know, some sort of uh, demand from the people who participate in these worlds. Hey, if you want us to help build out these new imaginary immersive worlds, we're ready to do it. We're ready to participate, but we're going to do, do that on our terms. We'll see how far we get with that. You know, there's this sort of a long pendulum swing on the internet between um, highly decentralized, ad hoc, uh, you know, uh, work that's done by different individuals uh, in large numbers, and then centralization on the other side. And of course, we're in a phase of supremely concentrated centralization. Um, but, but also movements of decentralization, including you know what Twitter used yeah. to moot and Jack Dorsey, and and yeah. of course now we inject the you know, blockchain type elements where That's there right. is more and more of the potential. And so yeah. uh, we've talked on, you've talked on the uh, the futurist before about uh, distributed autonomous organizations. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very hard at this point for a DAO to establish a, uh, you know, massive market share in mm -hmm. social platforms, but it does, there will be more alternatives. There, there are already alternatives where we can start to see distributed rights where essentially you know, everyone can own and control with a high degree of granularity yeah. their information, how it's shared, uh, you know, the interactions and so on. And this is, this is absolutely a very compelling vision of, right. uh, of where it could go. But, but we it's still but largely to, uh, vision at this stage. Largely, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there, I mean, there's a, there's some debate going on right now, obviously, around um, health data, as an example. I think there is elements of efficiency to centralizing data networks in the respect to like health services, as an example. Um, you know, genomics, uh, blood work, uh, you know, um, uh, by you know, real time biometrics, and so forth. Um, I, I actually think, um, you know, having um, that all centralized at a national level um, would provide you the ability to be far more efficient and, you know, better at resource management in terms of provision of healthcare than keeping it in lots of different separate companies, for example. Um, but you, you, you could have an element of decentralization, like we have the concept of open banking with financial services, where, you know, certain, you make certain elements of that data available to the decentralized world to massage and innovate, um, you know, health tech or, around that. I think there's, um, you know, I think that there's an argument where you could have in these worlds of the future, a, a bit of a hybrid in terms of that centralized and decentralized. Yes, and you necessarily need that, um, particularly in terms of health data. And I think health data is, it's really pointed because, and this this shows up the, the privacy versus uh, common value debate. If we look at sharing uh, DNA data, because potentially if we were able to prepare, uh, have correlate individual uh, genetic data with everything from, you know, all of your behaviors, all of your, you know, your diseases, everything that goes wrong, goes right, then we could have an extraordinary database. But this would require everybody to expose all of their genetic data with, you know, fraught implications, uh, you know, and potential for abuse of this. So this is, I think, this is a real way in which we can, when in mapping some of these future paths forward, there is massive common value in sharing data and where, where possible, being able to give people, individuals, that control, that uh, to control that data. But there are also issues because we've always seen that these things have been abused and uh, genetic data is one of those things that can be. Well, let's also point out that most people don't want the hassle of managing this stuff, right? We would prefer, instead of setting up an email server, we prefer to get the free email from Google, even if it means Google gets to read every single one of our emails. We all seem to have gotten pretty comfortable with that. And while I'm not proposing radical transparency or, you know, the, the radical release of personal data, I'd love to actually, you know, have a bit, bit more control over that. I'm realistic about the fact that most people just can't be bothered. Uh, we have not done a good yeah, job as yeah. technologists of conveying the value of maintaining your personal data, which includes your behavior, your location, 
your preferences, your interests, your browsing activity, all your communications, who your friends are, what they're interested in. I mean, like the list goes on and on. The amount of things that are being tracked is actually quite extraordinary. Most people are blissfully unaware of it. Um, and, and when you point it out to them, they're outraged for a moment, uh, but then when they go, they go right back to their yes. Gmail and their instant messaging account and their social media accounts that are managed by a centralized system. So there's a certain amount of user lassitude or inertia that would have to be overcome for a, decent, a truly decentralized approach to gain a lot of traction. Yes. yes. Ross, I mean, Ross is, you know, looking at your career as a, as a futurist, futurologist, is there anything that's really surprised you uh, in terms of developments that have happened that you thought might take a different path? Well, I, well, the, the first thing that's bring to mind is how uh, social media and sharing has gone uh, not as well as we initially hoped. Yeah. I think there's many of us, you know, I was one of the massive evangelists from the start saying, you know, the potential for connection and, you know, there were a lot of very powerful benefits initially and that has been perverted and subverted. Um, it doesn't mean we can't come out the other side so these are all of great value, but that's, you know, the sort of the first thing that springs to mind. Um, and, you know, I am an optimist and so... You know, this is, you know, in a, that's that's quite a deliberate stance. Uh, and it's been found that there have been some, you know, things that have happening which have, um, you know, I wouldn't say shaken that because, you know, I still think we need we can be optimists. But in terms of the political developments uh, globally, fractures. And so I suppose if we're looking from a scenario perspective, one of the key dimensions between coherence and fragmentation I suppose it's not so much a surprise per se, but, you know, I suppose uh, alarming is this massive fragmentation or polarization, which we're seeing across borders on all sides. And I suppose that's certainly something I haven't, you know, I've been looking at for a long time, but for at a certain point, it was started to become uh, something I had to become more aware of. And you're talking about the polarization of the electorate and, and uh, domestic politics. Not, not only. So for me, uh, polarization goes across uh, politics, uh, the wealth against uh, access around education, around uh, you know, attitudes to privacy, around attitudes to openness, uh, you know, the whole wealth of different domains. And a lot of these ends up as social fragmentation. You know, essentially this is you know, dividing the populations uh, in various ways, but it is not, not just political. Well, I think uh, what we should probably do now is roll into a break. Uh, folks, you're listening to The Futurists with Brett King and me, Rob Tursik. And this week, our guest is Ross Dawson, the futurist from Australia. He's a keynote speaker, a noted author, and he's been a futurologist for more than 20 years. And we've just been going through a little bit of that history. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a minute. So please stay tuned to The Futurists. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Hey, you're listening to The Futurists, and we're back. It's uh, Rob Tursik with my co-host, Brett King. And this week, we're interviewing Ross Dawson, a futurist from Australia. And one of the things that's on my mind is, hey, I'm getting double teamed here by two Australian futurists this no week. No worries, mate. What's, <laughs> what's the story? What is it about Australia that makes you so interested in the future? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe a little bit of a different case, as I've lived a very chunk, large chunk, including almost all my childhood overseas. Uh, so I'm not a typical Australian, don't have an Australian, a very Australian accent. Yeah, I can't claim to but, be a typical Aussie either. <laughs> well, but that's no, part true, of no, it. Hang true. on, hang on, no, hang on. But every Australian I know travels like mad. Like Australians have no problem. If you go, well, it's a 24-hour yes. flight. They're like, yeah, no problem. And then, yeah. you know, like everywhere you go, you run into Australian backpackers. And so that's, that seems well, like that, a Well, that is part character. of it. I think this desire to explore. Yeah. And so Australians are very, there's, 
if you look at the Association of Professional Futurists and the board and so on, there are uh, Australians are vastly out represented according, uh, relative to our population. There's a lot of Australians, a lot of Australian uh, courses, you know, mm-hmm. sort of tertiary courses and so on. So, right, there's a lot of Australian that, interest in the future, but it's not a particularly futuristic country, is it? Well, I think that, well, the politics has is, is rarely been very uh, future-oriented, so, save for a few yeah. politicians here or there who tried to do something uh, the, the and last, immediately batted down with Keating, big sticks. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a little bit of a pendulum swing. You make a step forward and a step back. But what I've noticed, I've been to Australia a lot in the last 20 years, and what I've noticed is that there's two of everything. You know, there's like two major retail companies, there's two major yep. sportswear companies, there's you know, there's two telcos, for instance, uh, and and it's because in a country with a population smaller than that of California, how many businesses can you sustain? Yeah. Um, and then the main business of Australia is selling, you know, bits of the country by the shovel full. Exactly. China has been certainly. <laughs> so in a way, that's you kind know, of there, there was totally a, there was a great uh, economist. I can't remember his name right now, but he he said Australia's. Um, you know, a, a third world country with a lot of natural resources, right? You know, the point being that the Australian economy was fairly dependent on those natural resources. If you limit, if you take that out of the economy, the economy looks very, very uh, different. Um, and I think that's one of the most frustrating elements in in respect to what you're saying, Rob, or the question about um, being future focused. Like Australia is the perfect country for developing solar technology. Right, mm-hmm. uh, Australia is the perfect country for looking at, um, you know, uh, a, a renovation of the ocean. You know, in respect to to plastics and, um, you know, a bleaching of of the Great Barrier Reef and so forth. You know, there's there's so many areas where Australia would do well uh, domestically, um, you know, and internationally competitively to develop uh, future-focused technologies. But um, well, because- well, it has done fairly well on the particularly the solar energy technologies. Australia's uh, universities are in the vanguard. A lot of it has been the issues with commercialization. Right. And the and the and the economy is in a transition phase now with. You know, more and more people who do things like watch the rich list, see uh, how the technology, uh, you know, young technologists are getting a pretty, getting a pretty yeah, decent exactly. chunk of the list and so but on. But in, in terms of high technology, you know, there's like two examples of Australian companies that have been successful, I think, uh, Atlassian and, and Canva, right? Two companies based in Australia that have kind of broken out into the world stage where if you take a country like, say, Finland or Israel or even the Netherlands when it comes to TV formats, these countries with significantly smaller populations, uh, five or six million, their entire economy is geared for export. Like everything they develop, they use the, they use the domestic territory as just a beta test or a launch, a proof of concept. And the whole, the whole idea is to launch stuff internationally. I was always curious why the Germans and French were not as successful in exporting technologies or developing new ideas uh, for media. And the reason is they have pretty big domestic markets. So they're kind of, um, if you can be successful in Germany, well, you know, you're pretty successful. You don't really feel this compelling urge uh, to export where uh, smaller countries, if you want to be very successful, you're going to need to design everything from the start for export. Well, well, I think this, well, there's some schizophrenia in Australia. There's a part of it is this, you know, everyone says Australia's a small economy. Well, in fact, it's, you know, in the order of 12th largest in the world. Yeah. So, you know, and it's 25 million and also fairly rich. And it's, you know, it's a decent sized economy. But there is, so it is almost big enough. Yeah. So to to sustain decent businesses. And yeah. so, and part of that schizophrenia as well is that there is some deep conservatism in Australia, wanting to stop immigration, wanting to hold us back, wanting to, you know, just focus on the land and, you know, minerals and so on. And there is also this extraordinarily, you know, uh, uh, you know, all the travelers you mentioned are the ones who are yeah. out there exploring, uh, looking for the world, looking to connect. And so you say, well, I'm, you know, I'm born, I grew up somewhere which is so far from the rest of the world. Well, mm-hmm. I want to go and explore. I want to touch things. I want to move. And so there is this schizophrenia where there is this deeply conservative stay at home, let's keep other people out type of mentality, which is very real. And that was associated with the the political party, which was in power till the weekend. Um, but there's also this whole dynamic, which I think is, you know, come through the centuries of Australians who are just saying, well, we are a long way away. We want to explore. We want to connect. We want to do things. And one of the things I pointed to in the past is Australia actually has been very successful in crowdsourcing platforms. So we've had Freelancer, 99designs, um, Design Crowd, uh, 
the you know a bunch of the other crowd platforms. And for me, that was always made a lot of sense. Yes, we have uh, we want to be able to tap global audiences and global markets. We can pull those all together. You know, there's and that seems to have struck a chord in the ways in which we've been thinking about things. So. The mentalities are there, but there is this divided nature to the way Australians think about. Yeah. I mean, future. every country is a little schizophrenic. Yeah. One of the things I noticed in Australia is that um, there's a very, very strong labor movement. Uh, it's a it's a pro labor country, maybe more so than any other place I've visited, where you can say pretty well the labor unions in the United States have been dismantled. Uh, largely, you know, they're making a comeback right now, but it's tiny, right? In Australia, labor is is powerful. Um, and and moreover, there's an awareness of labor as an important factor in the economy, and people are conscious of that. And there's a kind of solidarity that comes with that. And so you have a sort of social solidarity. One of the things I noticed that struck me very powerfully uh, back in the 1990s, uh, my very first visits to Australia, was the emphasis on multicultural Australia. This idea that Australia's uh, position on the planet, you know, your geographic location causes you to have, you have no option. You have to embrace the fact that you're based in Asia and deal with that, but also the influx of European immigrants and the immigrants from other parts of the world, uh, that, that the, the makeup of Australia was changing. Australia is the first country in the world where I heard the welcome into the land, where people acknowledged that the land was actually right. you know, the, the, the home of an indigenous people. That was new to me. I'd never heard any American try to make some kind of invocation like that. We're starting to hear that all over the world now. Uh, That's an idea that I I first, I think first got purchased in Australia and it took quite a while for the United States and Canada to catch on. And really the US is a laggard in that respect. So in some respects, Australians are progressive in ways that we can barely understand in the United States. And we certainly don't have an experience of right now. Yes, well, if you look at Northern Europe, those are the, the socialist capitalists uh, countries which have uh, you know really pushed it out in terms of true socialization. Australia is probably more that end of the spectrum it is to the uh, individuality of America. Mm-hmm. Though it's there's there's still again I think you know this, this divide. But certainly yes, there is a strong labor movement. There's social socialized medicine. Uh, there is you know this belief that everyone should be supported. You know there's kind of no question around that. So it's it's not quite as as far as uh, Scandinavian countries in in many of those dimensions, but it is yes quite you know strongly social and in, in uh, or com you know well dare I use the word you know is it communal in terms of you know thinking about the common benefit here despite the the political divides. I mean that, that, that's a way to think about the future, right? That's a way to construct a future. Uh, I bring that up because um, here in California where I'm based, um, the futurist debate is very much dominated by um, libertarians. And these are people who, if you gave them a choice, there would be no government. Uh, They're not anarchists, but they are very distinctly people who are pro small government, like the less government, the better. Um, And, you know, there's merits to their perspective. So it's worth listening to that perspective. I hear it all the time. It's unavoidable in cryptocurrency and in the web free space because it's, uh, it's kind of the dominant strain of the folks that are there. Um, but that is a vision that does not have a lot of room or compassion for people who are disabled or differently able, right, people exactly. who are older or people who are not as adept or people who need a little bit of help and so forth. And you see that rep- represented in cryptocurrency where it's like, oh, you know, if you if your uh, MetaMask wallet gets hacked and you lose all your coins, like tough luck, you should have took better precautions and so forth. There's like very little sympathy there, very little empathy for people who might not be as adept uh, at that particular thing. And, um, and and from my viewpoint, that's um, that's a pretty cold future, um, and 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 that's a that's a dominant strain here in California. And those folks speak with a very loud voice. Uh, it's not hard to find examples of that. You know, certainly you can see. Uh, you know, Peter Thiel has been at the very forefront. He's very outspoken. Yeah. But even Elon Musk is starting to move in that direction in his public commentary. The the problem with that view, I think, um, you know, and and, and Ross, you, you jump in as well. But um, I, I, you know, if you look at the problems we have to tackle in the future, particularly, you know, the role of human capital and human labour in society as artificial intelligence uh, makes impact, and the impact of climate change, 
you you can't essentially have that view of the world because you, you the humanitarian cost will be so great if we don't provide um, you know some sort of uh, um, support system or um, you know safety net um, that it's just unconscionable. It's not something that we we um, as a, as a human species should ever. I think you know, go down that path, you know, like if, just look at food scarcity. We're talking about that at the moment, but obviously we're at just the start of the worst elements of the climate change in respect to food scarcity and, um, you know, uh, uh, e- eco-refugees where the estimates are anywhere f- from 300 um, million to 1.6 billion eco-refugees by 2050. Hmm. The so scale of that requires a much more cohesive cohesive community approach Sorry, uh, absolutely and, and yeah absolutely and the you know the themes of your book techno socialism i think are very highly aligned with that but i mean just i suppose complementing or pulling out some of those one, one of them is that we live in a networked world and in a networked world or if you have a scale-free network you have power law distributions apply so essentially as we move to a more networked society this actually is a force of polarization by its nature even if we are getting uh, part, you know even if we are getting everyone who is participating in the networked economy within them there are going to be by its very nature these uh distributions which pull people apart so this means that uh we are, we are moving into a more polarization these are the fundamental forces and we need to do everything possible to guard against that and that requires you know, essentially, as you pointed out, Brett, we have more and more abundance through technology. So we need to find ways where everyone can benefit from this. And whereas I, I don't fully subscribe to the view that we start to get massive technological unemployment, there are these risks of certainly underemployment. And so we need to be able to find ways to, you know, would be that through universal basic income or other ways to be able to have people participate. And part of the case to make is that if you are wealthy on the better end of the spectrum do you want a world which is conceivable where people are around with pitchforks and uh trying to burn your place down um or do you want people where most people are living happy lives and you can live a happy life too this is uh, reminds, reminds me of a quote from oliver wendell holmes who said i don't mind paying taxes because with them i buy civilization and that's a nice that's way a to think quote. about it, right? It's all, all right the stuff quote. that makes life okay, makes it safe to go, to, you know, go out in the street and so forth. You don't have to have private security. That's what we're getting with taxes. But now we're talking about the future. We're talking a little bit about forecasting, Ross. And and I want to shift the subject to that because this is the heart of our podcast. We're interested in forecasting methodologies. Recently, we had a conversation where I was a little bit surprised because we spoke to someone we have great respect for who kind of blithely said, you don't have to put any... Um, you don't have to put any dates on a forecast. You can be a futurist without putting a date on a forecast. And it kind of stuck in my head. And afterwards, I thought about that. And I said, what good is a forecast without a date? And, and just to put that in perspective, anyone who's an entrepreneur, and I know you're an entrepreneur, Ross, uh, anyone who's an entrepreneur puts their money on the line because they're making a bet on a date every single time. They're saying, I'm going to invest money right now because I think this is the moment in time where it's going to change. Things are going to be different and there'll be a new demand, a future demand for this new product or service that I'm making. And so it seems like a cop-out to uh, to not put a date on a forecast. Sorry to editorialize there, but why don't you guys respond to that? And then we can get into like the general topic of the quality of futurists in general. Well, well. I mean, firstly, I have to say that I don't, I don't actually make many forecasts at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do make some dated forecasts, but usually I don't, because I mean, I, when people say, "What's a futurist?" Right? My my role is that my answer is someone who helps people to think, you know, people in organizations think better about the future so they can act better today. And so it is that process of enriching thinking. That's my job. Is not so much to say, "Hey, I think this is going to happen," you know, either believe me or don't. It is to help people, leaders, and others to for themselves to have richer thinking, to think about things they didn't think about otherwise, and so that they can be better equipped to make their own decisions about the future. Mm-hmm. So I don't believe you can outsource. Everyone has to be their own futurist. You can't outsource being the futurist. I mean, the, the, in, the, in which case, the role of the future is not say, well, this is what I think. Then you can say, well, all right, I'm going to believe you. I'm going to put all my eggs because I think you're, you, you, uh, you're wonderful and I'll do everything you say. Or... I don't believe you, in which case, you know, there's no use at all. So I think it's most useful to engage and to enrich and to think. But sometimes 
That is through giving dated predictions, which I did, for example, in my newspaper timeline extinction uh, framework, where I had lots of dates, some of which have got uh, very wrong, some of which I think are going to be pretty, pretty spot on. Uh, and I've got a lot of pushback from it on various guises, but it made people think. Saying, and it made is he right? Is he wrong? Yeah. And they started to engage and saying, well, all right, when am I going to turn off my printing presses? And they did, weren't going to be thinking about that unless I was uh, actually giving them, uh, giving those dates. So, yeah, that's so exactly, I, to make it actionable for other people, there has to be a date to it. And, well, um, and I, I don't mind it, being I, wrong because being wrong is enlightenment. That's how we learn, right? That's, that's where information comes from. It's uh, you learn something in the process. So Ross, um, you know, you have uh, famously, uh, in fact, uh, we've used we've used your list of futurists um, to look at target futurists we should have on this show. Um, you have on rossdawson.com a, a, a ranking of the top uh, 200 or so uh, futurists. Um, tell us about the methodology use uh, in respect to that. Is it mostly a popularity uh, ranking or, or how did you come up with that? So, so this is a it's algorithmic, well, extremely simple algorithm, and it is based looking at influence. So, I, one of the events I did in uh, Sydney and San Francisco was a Future of Influence Summit back in two thousand and nine, where I was looking at influence as the emerging currency and economy, and uh, looking at various measures to how it is we can uh, look at influence. And in this, and I, actually, that was one of the startups which. I put some investment into initially and didn't come off called Repute, which was looking to provide a more than digital assessment of reputation in various domains. But um, but in terms of the futures ranking, it's just a very simple algorithm. It is only social influence. It's looking at web traffic, uh, Twitter, and some some broader social aggregation. You know, uh, I suppose activity and engagement on social media. So it is not nothing, not not the best, not the top, not the uh, the most wonderful, but simply the ones that get the most engagement digitally, based on just a few few measures. But that, that's still that's still interesting, in terms of you know the reach that these uh, futurists have. So it's like influential uh, futurists. Yes, yes, digital and digital uh, online influence only. So as I was saying, I was hoping to in other ways, in other domains, look at, for example you know, speaking in terms of books, in terms of, uh, you know, media, you know, non-digital media appearances and so on to aggregate some of those. But this list is simply just, an, you know, a few digital data points and aggregating those in terms of uh, online influence. What What's your own methodology? We talked a little bit about how you're very open to international influences. You're always seeking to build international connections and get that kind of feedback. But what else do you do to keep your blades sharp to keep learning about the future? Part of it is, well, there's this wonderful, you know, all three of us, we have this wonderful feedback loop where whenever we have a client which engages us, who sometimes, you know, puts us on a plane to some strange parts and we have conversations, we learn from them. So we are sharing what we have learned and we learn more by going to a different country, by being in a different industry, having a conversation with different people. So we're all starting, you know, that that's a wonderful part of being, you know, reasonably prominent futurists is you, 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 the nature, your work feeds your input. Yeah. There's a lot of social, obviously I'm, I'm scanning uh, sources all the time, being able to pull those together into frameworks, various kinds, but also trying to have those conversations with interesting people uh, in different domains that you know, thinking more deeply about specific things than me, that I can actually build up and uh, hone that understanding. But you know, a lot of my deep dives, when the client says, "Tell me about this," I've got to say, "All right, well, I know a fair bit. Let me just bring that up to date, or bring some new perspectives, or, or bring that to bear." Yeah, I've gone around and done um, interviews with thirty or forty people, um, particularly in a field where, like healthcare, where I'm not going to be an expert myself. But I know what questions what questions to ask, and uh, and I know who to call, so I can start to have a conversation, and then every conversation leads to another person, and pretty quickly you can distill the kind of the general wisdom. I think that's a good approach. That makes sense. Sorry, Brett, I cut you off. What were you about to say? No, no, I was saying it sounds like a think tank, but you know something that 
you know, um, I, I think we we all tend to do that. I mean, um, you know, uh, futurists. One thing I really love about futurists is they tend to be very collaborative. If you go to a futurist and ask them a question about the future, they can't help but give you an opinion or jump into the conversation and so, share their um, reasoning. Right? They'll say, "Here's exactly. why." You know, even yeah, if it's yeah. a debate or like an argument, you get you get into a very constructive conversation because yeah. you start to think about the forces that shape the future. Ross, what do you think the big forces are that shape the future? I have all sorts of theories about that, um, but but I want to hear from you what what you think are the big macro trends that are going to determine um, the you know, kind of define the boundaries around what possible future is available to us in the next 10 years or so? Well, to take a probably a non-traditional approach, it is who we are as humans. When we find out who we become, we've discovered who we are. So if we just if we create a, a positive future where we float out the stars and we meld our consciousness, then that's who we are as humans. If we destroy ourselves, then we'll discover who we are as humans. Yikes. So that is the fundamental oh, question. The fundamental trend is who are we and discovering what that is through what we and What's act. the purpose? Yeah. So w- where we have got to today is the nature of us as inventors. Humans, we always say, I want to do this better. I want to make things, things. I'm ambitious. I want to you know, create a better way of doing things. And that's the history of who we've become. And so there are fraught implications of that. You know, we've created some, some, uh, you know, some deep challenges for us in that process. And so there is this divide between, yes, can we, through the, I suppose, this techno-utopianism perspective and saying, well, you know, we're, we're brilliant, we can solve all the problems we've created, possibly, or that we are some, the deep divisions within us. So in terms of thinking about the future, I think it's ultimately saying, who are we and how will we express ourselves collectively? And and critically, are we evolving? And that's, in fact, the next phase of yeah. my work is looking at can we evolve both in terms of our cognition, of our ways of thinking, and morally. And philosophically, yeah. Uh, that And that leads us to a great way to sort of finish this out. We tend to do this on on each of the uh, the episodes now is, is looking out over the next 30 to 50 years, Ross, um, what excites you about the future? What what captures your imagination? You know, futurists tend to be in a hurry to get to the future. What would you really like to see happen in, in the future? A, a big part of my focus is human-machine uh, integration, synthesis, symbiosis, where our brains, which are, you know, if we look at the entire universe, the most extraordinary phenomenon in the entire universe is the human brain by you know many orders of magnitude it is just mind boggling we we you know we we have we understand the depths of the universe we go down to these uh you know quarks and these microparticles yet we actually have a pretty limited understanding of our brain that's the real frontiers so if we can merge not just our human brain and it's a extraordinary capabilities with the technologies that we create, be they artificial general intelligence or whatever it is that we can do with technologies and bringing those together and and potentially creating, being able to merge uh, conscious human consciousness and human thinking, direct human to human uh, brain communication. So of course, you know, many challenges and many uh, potential problems with all of this, but that's a, that's, Mm. that is truly exciting where I can tap through my mind just to access the, you know, the, all of the information available, offload different uh, you know, cognitive processes, to use that to be able to think more effectively about the future, about my relationships, and as well to be able to connect more directly to someone else's brain, be that a lover or be that someone I'm trying to have a complex political debate with. Interesting. You know, a few years ago, there was an event in us in in South South Australia in Adelaide, uh, where I wanted to bring you in, and unfortunately, it didn't work out for that particular event. But one of the speakers that I really wanted you to meet was Dr. Philip Alvelda, and he was the researcher at DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects at the Pentagon in the U.S. Our Defense Department, uh, who developed that that cortical modem, the brain interface for the computer, and um, and he was talking about many of these things. Uh, it wasn't just 
what happens to people when they can connect to the network, but it's also what happens to the machines. And he actually, since that time, has gone and launched uh, companies because he said, look, we're going to need com new computing architectures and new languages for computers so that they can understand and communicate with us better. So he's he's focused on that. We'll have him on a show in the future, but I do want to make that connection well, with you at some point because I know please. you will. Yeah, you'll get along very, very well. So, Ross, how can people find out more about the work you're doing? And, uh, of course, you've got a new book coming out, Thriving on Overload. Um, we, we hope to get you back on the show to talk about that when it comes out. But where can people find more about yourself and what you're working on? Uh, it's pretty easy. RossDawson.com on the web or Ross Dawson on Twitter or Ross Dawson on LinkedIn. Uh, and yes, a uh, new book coming out, Thriving on Overload. You can go to thrivingonoverload.com and they've got a podcast on there as well. Talking awesome. to amongst you, amongst other people yeah. about uh, how to thrive on overload in a world of information overload, how to make sense of it. So uh, that's uh, another resource. Wow, great. Well, well, Ross Dawson, great to have you on the show, yeah. man. Thanks. Like, like great pleasure. Every like every episode lately, it feels like we've only just touched the surface and we could uh, go on for, for much longer, but uh, thank you for joining us. And um, you know, all the way from Australia and um, yeah, stay, uh, stay healthy and stay positive. Uh, that's it for the futurist this week. We will be back next week, of course, with more great future discussions and uh taking into the future and don't forget to leave us a, a review if you've listened to the podcast a five-star review um you know wherever it is you download the podcast don't forget to share it on social media help others to find it all of that will be super helpful and and uh, robert and i will be very grateful for any assistance there to get some traction um but uh until then we will see you in the, in future. the future well that's it for the futurists this week if you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.